Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. How about a new look at the ancient story of Easter? You've heard the story more times than you can count. The arrest of Jesus, the trials before the judges, the passion, and of course the resurrection. A story like that can never grow old, but it can become so familiar that you miss the parts that are right before your eyes. Following up on his popular book, The Characters of Christmas, Daniel Darling's The Characters of Easter takes a new look at the people and circumstances that were part of the greatest story ever told. With a skillful blend of in-depth Bible interpretation and sanctified imagination, Darling introduces you to the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. Each chapter is accompanied by questions for group study, as well as suggested songs, both old and new, that lead to heartfelt worship. Let the characters of Easter lead your soul to rejoice with that ancient cry, He is risen indeed. Break free from the familiar and discover untold treasures in the story you thought you knew. And here to talk about the characters of Easter, the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle is Daniel Darling. He's an author, pastor, and leader. He is recently appointed as a director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a best-selling author of several books, including The Original Jesus, The Dignity Revolution, Away with Words, and this book, The Characters of Easter, which is now in a little series. We'll talk about that a little bit, the characters of this and the characters of that. He's also host of the popular weekly podcast, The Way Home. Without further ado, Daniel Darling. How are you, brother? Good, man. It's great to be back on here, man. Hope you're well. Uh, I'm doing well. It's always great to catch up with you. I'm excited to talk with you about this book. As we were saying before we started recording, I'm acknowledging it's not a new book. It's not, a, it's not an old book. It's what, like two years old. But normally mm-hmm. we're talking to somebody who has a book that's about to come out or yeah. has a book that just came out within the last six months or last year. But as a thematic episode, the first person I thought of to talk about Easter was you. And that's not a joke. That's not me trying to butter you up or anything. I thought, I want to talk to somebody about Easter. Let's have a special Easter episode. Well, my friend Dan Darling, he wrote a Characters of Easter book. Where'd this idea come from? So the Characters of Christmas was the first one? Yeah, Christmas was the first one. You know, I've always loved character profiles. I've okay. always loved biographies. I mean, like in my leisure time, I read biographies. This is what I, just what I love. And I remember when I was in college, listening to the radio and listening to um, Chuck Swindoll. And he do remember he do those like character profiles of like Moses yeah, and Joseph. Yeah. And I would like listen to those. I'd get the like cassette tapes, you know, your younger audience want to Google, <laughs> You're dating Google yourself here. Pat, yeah. <laughs> pass them around. But I've always loved that. And, you know, the thing that we forget, I think about Easter is that, you know, these figures like Peter and John and Pontius Pilate, they're sort of icons at this point, right? We name, at least the apostles, we name our kids and our hospitals and our cities after them. But they were actually just ordinary people who were cast in the story of Easter by God in, in, in his sovereignty. And so I think by looking through their lives, we can, it tells us more about Jesus. Yeah, I can see the interest in it. First of all, as you mentioned, this is a, an enduring conceit to look at the different figures, characters, even the short bio concept. I know Eric Metaxas just had a book a few years ago that was a bestseller that was looking at, you know, famous men and 
this is a, a recurring thing. I actually pitched a book recently. I don't want anyone to steal the idea, but it was a similar thing. It was not accepted. It, it was a rejected idea, so maybe it wouldn't matter if somebody stole it. But because it, it does seem to get a lot of traction, I think this is a great doorway for people into a deeper reflection on the holiday, on you know the Easter season, on Easter week. It just gives them different handholds. In the introduction to the book, you talk about the need for Easter, which takes us a little bit deeper than just in, in some ways it's like Christmas. There's not as much buildup to the Christmas holiday. There's not as much of the uh, decorative m- mechanism and, uh, you know, movies and all that sort of thing as there is for Christmas. But at this, it has a similar feeling for me. Like on Easter Monday, I'm like, oh, it just, it kind of came and went and it, it, it more happened to me than I really so in the introduction, you talk about why we need Easter. I wonder if you could sort of flesh that out for us. Why, why do we need Easter? You know, this is one of the things when I, when I pastored, you know, I love doing the resurrection Easter message. I loved Good Friday. It was one of my favorite services of the year, and I love Easter. And I think one of the things we can say to a world that is increasingly less interested in the Christian story or maybe like – more secular, I think doesn't have that framework of Christianity is to say here, here's what Christianity says about the world. And here is the Easter story then. And you might not believe it right now, but after you're finished understanding it, you wish it was true. Right. Because I think there's instinctively a longing in all of us that, that the world is not as it should be. And we are not as we should be. We're all messed up in some way. And we need something outside of us to save us. Like even our, our great stories tell us, right? Like think of this, think of the superhero genre that's so popular that makes so much money at the box office. What are those stories saying? They're saying the world was once good, something messed it up, and we need something outside of us to save us that's kind of human, but also somewhat supernatural. And of course, the Christian story tells that in you know, is the original version of that and tells it in full. And so I think on Easter we're saying to the world, we really believe this that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if this is true, then it really changes everything. And actually, I wrote this book during COVID, during 2020, when the world seemed so dark. Everyone was shut in, so much death around us. And I think we still see that, you know, on our timelines and everything, war and death and shootings. And the resurrection, to me, was made newly fresh because the resurrection says that this is not all there is, that Christ has come to not just renew and restore people, but to renew and restore the world. And he's defeated death, sin and death in the grave. What a great hope. And if my um, apologetic for it is, if not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what then? You're like, we need, Mm. we need this, right? Yeah. Is it Jaroslav Pelikan who says, if, you know, if Christ isn't risen, then nothing else matters. But if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. Right. Um, that's it's, exactly it's such right. an impactful statement, which doesn't seem like it would make sense, but it, it makes total sense in, in the hearing. Yeah, that's certainly why we need Easter in terms of our immersion in a secular culture, which is set against even the idea of, of new life, whether they know it or not. What gets lost in the holiday for the Christian? So the obvious answer and the Sunday school answer and the true answer is to why we need Easter is because we need the resurrection. We need new life. We need to know the fullness of the eternal life that Christ has purchased for us. We need to know that Jesus is alive. That's the theological foundation for us. But what culturally for the believer, 
happens at Easter time? What gets lost in our observation of the holiday? Because it's I don't think it's the same thing as the world's focus on candy and and the Easter bunny. Mm-hmm. There's something for the Christian, well, I think, you know, particular in the Christian culture. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this and Christmas. In one sense, you could say they've both been somewhat commercialized, right? Easter has been commercialized. It's pastels. It's candy. It's <laughs> dressing up nice. It's, you know, food, the dawn of kind of springtime. On another sense, as Christians, we can step back and say, even in 2023, as secularized as the world is, the world is still stopping and at least peeking in on the Christian story. And it's our opportunity to say, all this stuff is great. The pastels, you know, the Reese's like peanut butter eggs and all that stuff is, is great. I'm not anti that. I'm for that. But there's actually something here like that God has visited us in Christ and that he, that Jesus, the God man rose from the dead and he defeated death. The idea of defeating death, that the misery of this world, the cycle of misery is not forever. There's an end point to it. And I think bodily resurrection, you know, Christians, I think evangelicals, have lost in many ways a theology of the body that Christ is not just returned to restore our souls, but to restore our bodies that human bodies are good. And then those who believe in him, their bodies will, we will rise again. Right. And so people whose bodies are failing, people who have chronic pain, people who lost loved ones, people who have disability, all that, you know, the resurrection is such a great hope. I, I think of John 11, where Jesus gives this great promise to Martha that, you know, those who believe in me will rise again. So I think it's the most important part of the Christian faith. It's why we gather. It's why we're pastors. It's why we do all of this, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's why we do everything. I mean, we shouldn't be doing religious stuff. Like we might as well stay home on Sunday and not not, not bother, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think I think that's why it's it's so important for us. And I think we have to keep the message on that. We have to be cranky about it and say, oh, you know, let's not do Easter egg hunts and all that. But I I think we're the only ones that have this message. So if the world doesn't hear the gospel from us, it, who's it going to hear it from? Right. So we have to. This is our time and our holiday and our our moment where the world's peeking in, where we they need to hear it what the resurrection is, what the gospel is. Let's get into some of the characters here. So the chapters take us through, of course, as the title indicates, the characters of Easter. You've got chapters on Peter, John, Judas, Barabbas, Pilate, Thomas. You have an entire chapter devoted to the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. You have a chapter devoted to the women, the witnesses to the resurrection. You have the secret disciples, Uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And then you have the Romans collectively as a chapter. First question, which was your favorite to write about? Maybe there's a a couple that kind of rivaled your favorite, but which one did you you enjoy the most writing about? I mean, it's hard to say because it's like asking, you know, (laughs) which is your favorite child, right? Um, You know, when you write about it's not the same, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) None of these are your children. You know, when you. That's true. But I tell you, when you write about the characters of the Bible, you kind of, in some ways, fall in love with with them. And one of the things I want to do in this series is I think when Christians today, contemporary Christians read the Bible, we need to treat the characters in the Bible like the the real life characters and people. And in a sense, love our neighbor as ourselves, even though Bible cares. It's easy to read the Gospels and be like, oh, the disciples are such idiots. And how could they say this? And why were they doing this? 
and I, one of the things I'm trying to do is just bring out like the fact that these are real people and what they went through. I think my favorite chapter is the one on Peter. It's the longest chapter. There's so much in the gospels about Peter. It's such a compelling story. His call to ministry, his call, Jesus called to him. You know, I think we think of it as one singular call when he says on the beach, follow me. But if you actually trace through the gospels, it's kind of a, a series of calls, right? Like first he's interacting with Jesus in Caesarea there. And then his, it's his brother who, who like starts following John the Baptist and then follows Jesus and his brother comes to him, which is just an amazing moment. His brother comes to him and says, you know, we found him, which you're just trying to think through that, like him grabbing Peter by the lapel and saying, you know, we've been waiting for the Messiah. I know we're jaded. I know there's been a lot of false ones that I'm telling you, you got to come with me. And, uh, and then the, the scenes on the beach where Jesus comes and says, you know, first of all, he had, he, he goes to their workplace, they're fishing their business. And, you know, Jesus, when, when he comes into our lives, he invades all of our lives. Things most closest to us, there's things we value the most comes into his workplace. He tells him how to do his job, you know, cast your net on the other side, which no one wants to be told that. But Peter's like, well, he did heal my mother-in-law and he does do miracles. So normally I wouldn't t- let someone tell me how to do my job, but I'm going to do it this time. I'll just humor him and throw the net on the other side. And of course, there's this great bounty of fish and Peter falls down and worships him. And then, you know, he leaves everything. I think we, we don't understand the disciples. They left everything for three years. They didn't know how it all would, would work out. They didn't understand everything Jesus was saying. Neither would we have. We probably wouldn't even have the courage to follow him as the disciples did. There's another scene where Jesus feeds the, the masses, you know, feeds the 5,000. And then he issues some hard words and a lot of people leave. And he turns to the disciples and says, okay, are you going to leave too? Which is a divine moment, but also a human moment with Jesus saying, are, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, which really sums up Peter that, and sums up really our walk with Christ that we don't understand everything you're doing, Jesus. We don't, we don't really get it. And some of it we don't even like, <laughs> but where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? And so I just, his story is so compelling. Of course, there's the denial, which I think his denial is less about him betraying Jesus. I think it's more about him trying to stand up for Jesus in his own strength. You know, all these turkeys are going to leave you, but man, I'm going to be here with you and I'm going to fight in my own strength. And it's interesting that same person, you know, not many days later is preaching before crowds at Pentecost. He's saying we obey God rather than man. He's going to jail for preaching all that. The difference obviously is that he had an encounter with the risen Christ and he's empowered by the spirit. Now he's doing ministry, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the spirit. So his story is so compelling. It's so much like our story, like our stumbling walking with Jesus that I think people resonate with him. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I, I, I resonate with Peter the most as well. Just speaking before he thinks and, the yeah. impulsiveness and in, in a way, I mean, it's probably unfair even to kind of put personality types on, on these guys, but yeah, I, I just see something of kind of the thinking rashly thinking impulsively in, in Peter jumping out of the boat, you know, chopping off an ear, yeah. all that sort of thing. Right. Um, he's the easiest for me to connect with. Which character was the most challenging, would you say, or maybe the most difficult to you write know, I about? Think- I think the most perplexing character in the story is um, 
someone like Pilate, right? Because here he is a, a kind of a ruthless leader. He had already cracked down on, on the Jewish people before he was in a, he was governor being governor of Judea was not a, it was not a coveted position in the Roman empire. It's kind of a backwater, not a great job. There had been revolts and uprisings. He's trying to keep it together. Rome's watching him. He's nervous. And uh, it's, it's compelling, I think, because he knows it, it's interesting. It, it appears on the surface that Jesus is on trial before Pilate, but actually Pilate's on trial before Jesus. <laughs> and I, I love the scene where Pilate sort of pulls him backstage and says, Hey man, can you work with me? I mean, this is, this is just my like inter- interpretation. Right, right. Like, Hey bro, can you, can you work with me? I'm on your side. Sanctified imagination is what the, what the, <laughs> right. Cover you yeah. Sanctified imagination. <laughs> it's like, can you work with me here? I'm trying to help you out here. And Jesus basically says, you know, you're only in power because of me. And, you know, then there's this dream that his wife has to, um, to say like Jesus is innocent. God is trying to reach Pilate. And it's, it's so fascinating to read the dialogue with Jesus that even as Jesus is on trial, and you think of the power dynamic here, Pilate has all the power. He has the authority of Rome. He could have anyone killed he wants. He can crush any rebellion. Jesus is standing before him. He's a itinerant rabbi with no power. He's poor. He's beaten up. And yet he has the audacity to say, actually, I, I'm the one who's who's in charge here and you are on trial. And what are you going to do with 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 Jesus? What are you going to do with with God? And that's really the confrontation that every person has, not only at Easter, but throughout their lives. Like, what will you do with the reality of Jesus? I mean, that, that is the question of Easter. And um, in my sanctified imagination, I like to think and there's been a few novels written that have been pretty interesting about Pilate. My imagination, I like to think that after this encounter, Pilate cravenly gives into the crowd. He gives Jesus over. He says, what is truth? You know, this sort of postmodern idea that after the resurrection, Pilate somehow has this conversion. And, you know, he's a member of, you know, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem (laughs) or something. I don't know, but maybe not. You know, stranger things have happened. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Stranger things have happened. What about anything surprising? I mean, obviously, you're not new to any of these characters, so to speak, because you know your Bible. But as you began to dive in to write these character sketches, activate your sanctified imagination, anything that surprised you, anything that struck you? Maybe it wasn't new to you, but struck you in a fresh new way that you didn't expect that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a couple of things that strike me. I think one is, you know, we think about Judas and we think of Judas as the betrayer because he was. But, you know, before Judas was a betrayer, he was a gospel preacher. And Judas left everything to follow Jesus for three years, which is commendable. Judas was sent out by Jesus two by two to go preach the gospel of the kingdom and heal. And just think about this, Jared. There might be people in heaven who first heard about Jesus through the lips of Judas. And yet Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. Like it boggles the mind. Like, how does this happen? Right. How do people do that? And I think with Judas, I mean, people speculated this for 2000 years that Jesus became, Jesus was not the Messiah Judas wanted. He wanted a political Messiah. He wanted a, someone who would, who would take over. He was, probably came from an area that was a little bit more radical than the other disciples in terms of the resistance to Rome. And then you start to see it turn the corner. Jesus starts talking 
making his way to the cross. He starts talking about death and resurrection, which is not the way you like do an overthrow. That's not what the Maccabees did when they retook their country. It's just, he's Jesus doing all the wrong things. And then he's at this Mary of Bethany. I think the turning point for him was when Mary Bethany opens this expensive perfume and pours on Jesus feet and Jesus accepts it and says, this is preparing me for my burial. I think Judas was just like, man, I'm cashing out of this. You know, I thought I was betting on the next, you know, great leader. And what is he doing? And what's sad about him and what really struck me was you have Peter and Judas, right? Both of them let Jesus down. Both of them betray Jesus in a certain way. Peter turns back toward, you know, toward Jesus and saw his, the one he betrayed was also his savior. Judas, you know, this is all in the sovereign plan of God, right? But Judas could have turned back to Jesus and he could have found forgiveness from the one he betrayed. I mean, all of us have betrayed Jesus, but we can find forgiveness in the one in our, in him as our savior. So that really struck me. The other one that struck me is Barabbas. You know, that, that story, I, I, I knew I wanted to profile Barabbas when I was thinking about what characters, because he's such an example of substitutionary atonement. Right. I mean, and I just try to think in my mind, I talk about it in the book, imagine you're Barabbas. He was an insurrectionist. He was a, a mercenary. He was a murder for hire guy. He's sitting on death row. He knows he's guilty. He's probably writing his, to his mother and getting his affairs in order eating his last meal. And all of a sudden there's a sort of knock on the cell door and a Roman guard opens it and says, you're not going to believe this. I don't understand this, but you've been set free. And, you know, I wonder if Barabbas ever reckoned with the fact that, you know, the one who died in his place also died in his place, you know, like, in a sense, we're all Barabbas that Jesus, he did, he did die in our place. And he did set us free. He he died the death we should have died. I, I wonder if we'll see Barabbas in heaven. If if Barabbas, if if that ever weighed on him, if 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 he was part of the early church or anything like that, I, I that would be amazing if he was. In God's providence, I just love the creativity. I mean, doesn't Barabbas literally mean son of dad or <laughs> like son yeah. of, son of the father? You know, um, right. son of daddy. And you have the son of the father, son of God traded for son of dad, right. which sounds like a bad serial killer, actually. Like, you know, be on the lookout right, for the first son of dad. Like a, <laughs> like a Hulu series or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but even that just tells us, you know, the likelihood of that is so, I think, creative that the Lord would even orchestrate such a thing to occur yeah. like that. And I know there's a lot of debate about the atonement and there's, there's so many aspects of the atonement. It's like this multifaceted diamond, right? But I just strongly believe if you don't have the idea of substitutionary atonement, you really lose the majesty of the gospel, like that Jesus yeah. died in my place. I mean, this is what we are saying on Easter, that I, on Good Friday and Easter, I should have been there. My sins, I'm guilty, and Jesus died in my place. And Barabbas is like a picture of that. It's To me, it's so beautiful. Talk to us a little about the secret disciples. What did you, uh, what do you cover? What's a part of the sketch for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? Yeah. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are interesting. Um, they're both Pharisees and I have a chapter on Sadducees and Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were more of the um, conservatives. They valued the scriptures. The Sadducees were, 
I guess you could call them liberals in the sense that they they only believe the first five books. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were more comfortable being allied with Rome. Yeah, I mean, more culturally acclimated. Yeah, they actually um, were probably most of the people that put Jesus to death that were in power were Sadducees. So most of the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees, but Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were Pharisees. And so they were kind of outnumbered on the, on the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders. But what's interesting to me, you know, Nicodemus is that Jesus called him as the greatest teacher. He was schooled in the law, schooled in the ways of God, had tremendous power, but he saw something in Jesus that his fellow Pharisees couldn't see. He saw Jesus by night. We don't know if he saw Jesus by night because he was scared. We don't know if he, he just needed time to talk, probably a little both. And he listened to Jesus. Uh, and then later he defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin when they're all trying to kill him. He said, hey, let, let's give him a hearing. Like, why are we doing this? And then later he's with Joseph and getting the body of Jesus. We don't know much about Joseph other than that he was a wealthy man who used his money to give Jesus a proper burial. You know, I think a lot of times we, the first instinct is to criticize them to say, why weren't they outspoken earlier? You know, to be a Christian is to be outspoken about your faith. And I think to a certain extent that's true, but I think they represent people who sometimes are in positions where they have to be wise about how they declare Christ and when they, you know, timing and everything. And when it mattered most, they stood up for, for the Lord, for, for them to request the body of Jesus. Hmm you know, a, a criminal who was executed outside the city gates, who people mocked, who would probably have just been buried in, a, in an unmarked grave as a common criminal. For them to step forward as men of prestige and influence and say, we're going to identify with this man. We're going to identify with Jesus and we want to take his body is a, is a huge statement of faith. It's a tremendous act of courage. They could be ostracized from their community. It was kind of a sign of what it would mean to be a Christian in the first century to say, no, I'm with the, the man from Nazareth who was killed by the Romans. And we say rose from the dead. I'm with him. And I think what they did to give Jesus a proper burial was showed how much they loved him and were willing to do this. It's very similar to what Mary and Bethany was doing and, and, and worshiping Jesus. But also, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to Joseph and Nicodemus because because he was buried in Joseph's tomb the ladies and and Peter and John were able to come later and see it it was it was a visible obvious witness to the resurrection right it was a signpost and so in some ways they funded the first evangelistic presentation if you will and also it fulfilled prophecy that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb so i, I think for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus you know, there are sometimes people who are in position, difficult positions. Think of Christians in closed countries who want to be bold about their faith, but have to be wise about how they do it. Or think of people who are in executive positions at corporations or someone who's working in a kind of secular academic environment. And they're, they're strong believers. They follow Jesus. They're unafraid to take a stand for him, but they have to be wise about when and the timing and where they do that. And I think for those people, Joseph and Nicodemus are kind of an inspiration. One thing that I appreciate about your book, I mean, probably the main thing I appreciate about your book is how it's in situating us in these characters. You're situating us in the location. You're situating us in the scene, so to speak, which is so important for the reasons we kind of talked about in the top of the episode 
about why we need Easter, the cultural sort of sweep of the holiday, so to speak, the secularizing of the holiday, Mm. the superficial experience of it. This is going to feel like a left field question, but I promise it's not. Um, (laughs) There's a line that, especially in, in, in American churches, that we're trying to navigate between Easter being an evangelistic opportunity and Easter being a time to pack the house through the use of, for lack of a better word, gimmicks, baits, you know, things, you know, we're going to have cash and prizes, things for the kids, inflatables, you know, the Easter egg hunt, all sort of things. There's a line between appropriate hospitality, outreach strategy and gimmickry. I think the tendency towards the gimmickry is something that a book like yours, this is why I think it, this could sound like a left field question. A book like yours helps us because I think the the tendency toward a gimmickry is a tendency to distrust the reality, the power, the tangibility of what Easter is about. And your book kind of puts us, these were real people who experienced real things. They had real thoughts and feelings. And you're helping us get a window into that. Pastor, just for a second, you know, anyone listening, ministry leaders, pastors, maybe even children's ministry workers, pastor them across that line of, man, I really need the bells and whistles. We're not saying don't have Easter eggs for the kids or anything like that. Um, right. But how do you know where the line is? How can they trust that Easter is enough, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, there's always that line. I think, you know, in one sense, it's like the real draw is the story itself. The real draw is the gospel. And I actually think the more radical and weird Easter is, the the more compelling it is today because (laughs) people are looking for a way to explain the world. And and how do I get here? Where am I going? What's going to save us? How do we escape all this cycle of death and everything like that? So I think in that sense, the strangeness of Easter is compelling. I mean, I think the line, you have to think through the line of like, we want to draw people in, but are we drawing them in because of the the cash prizes? Are we drawing them in because of the story? And, you know, that's a little, every church is going to have to weigh that a little differently and come, they'll come to different conclusions. I think, you know, Paul sometimes in Romans acts like, man, I'll do whatever it is to get people, the Jewish people to come to faith. But I also get nervous about, making that the story, like the, the story on, on Easter Sunday, is it that you're giving cars away or is it that people are coming to faith? Now there are sometimes you can do unique things that will get people in the door and they'll hear the message and it'll be life-changing. Right. So I, I think there's a line there. I also think, you know, pastors always have, when I pastored, I had a tension with, and you probably face this too, Jared, with what part of Easter do we, how do we approach Easter? You can do it from an apologetic standpoint, which I think is helpful, you know, here's the evidences of the resurrection and walking through it. You know, N.T. Wright's great book is really a, a great resource to, to show us that there's so much circumstantial evidence that this is actually true, right? So do you go with a, an apologetic approach or do you do like what I've done sometimes where I've done the apologetic approach, walking through the evidences, or do you do another approach where you say, hey, here's what the, here's what the Bible says Easter is. Like you may not even understand Easter. You may come in here and not even realize what it, what we're saying. 
And here's the beautiful message of Easter that God has come in Christ to, to save us from our sin and to renew and restore the world. And what an amazing thing. And just holding up the beauty of Easter. And then you also have to think too, Colin Hansen talks about this in his biography of Keller, that he's always evangelizing and edifying at the same time. And I think that's such a good approach because sometimes we can be so geared toward an evangelistic thing on Easter that we, we forget that Easter is also a kind of catechesis for the, for the people of God. Like I've been a Christian for over 40 years, but I need Easter every Easter and I need, and my family needs it. And we need to be reminded of this. So I think you have to think of both audiences, like that person who comes in, the gospel should be so clear and so compelling the presentation that, and obviously we depend on the Holy spirit to draw them to Christ, but our job is to communicate it. But then also speaking to, to the people of God that they need Easter as well and why this matters to, to them and why they're getting up on Sunday every week and why they're doing all this. Right. So I, you have a lot going on there. And I think thinking through what are my audiences and I think increasingly I'm curious if people will still pack out Easter services, even in an increasingly secular society. Like, do we still have the Christian framework where people are like, they're not believers, but they think, well, I need to come on Easter. You know, I, yeah. I should probably come for the kids. Is that still a thing? I think in many communities it still is, but in many places it may not be. So, you know, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's becoming less of a thing. It's obviously still more of a thing in the Bible Belt and some portions of the Midwest and in, in rural communities where there is still a sort of a traditional, this is what we do. It was interesting, you know, a pastor in Vermont, we did not have a noticeable upswing of Easter or Christmas like we did when I was in Nashville. You lived in Nashville you know, the experience there yeah. um, or, or even a place like Houston, suburban Houston, you know, in the South in, in general. And yet, um, so they wouldn't come into the doors for the Easter service or for Christmas service. Uh, if we saw any uptick, it was relatives of church members who were in town mm -hmm. or something like that. But people from the town aren't coming. But when we did a lighting of the tree and the singing of Christmas carols on the town green, that mm -hmm. was a, a town tradition and the church let, you know, people in the church led this thing, but people saw that as, oh, this is a traditional experience. So it is becoming, yeah. I think, less of a thing in other parts of, of our country. And it's why I think a book like yours helps us kind of recalibrate again, not to the expense of hospitality, evangelistic outreaches, mm -hmm. you know, having fun with the kids. There's nothing wrong with having fun with the kids. But it helps us recalibrate to essentially what you said, like, if this is true, it's the most radical message, right? We have a, a savior who came back from the dead. We have a message about a man who came back from the dead. Nobody does that. And he did that. And right. if, if, you know, we can't sell that to you if, if you're not buying it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your experience in Vermont. I think in a place where there's not as much evangelical witness Easter is probably primarily a formative sacrament, if you will, for the people of God to remind them why they are here and what, what it's about so that they can go into the community and share the good news of the resurrection for people who won't come to church on Easter. I do think in a environment that has more civil religion, it has more of a framework, 
a big Easter can be great because you, you are bringing in people who, you know, our mutual friend Dean and Sarah will call unsaved Christians who have a bit of the framework of Christianity and they feel guilty to come on Easter, which is great because then you can walk them through and maybe that's the moment they come to faith in Christ. So I think it depends where you're at. I imagine if you're in a closed country, an underground church in China or something, it's just the people of God huddling together and saying, this is why we are willing to risk everything. I think for everybody, and for me especially, it's always an annual reminder of like, you know, Christianity gets so cluttered with, with so many things, right? So many barnacles. And on Easter, we're able to strip that away and say, okay, this is why we're doing it. This is why we're doing ministry. This is why we're raising our kids this way. This is why, like, okay, this is why. And even to our kids to say, hey, kids, this is why we do this. This is why we have these traditions, because this is true, right? And it gives us an opportunity for the watching world, which still covers Easter, to say, hey, all this stuff about Christianity, all the fighting and all the denominations, all this stuff, all all important. This is why we, this is who we are. You know what I mean? At the the core of it, this is who we are. That's a great word. The book is The Characters of Easter, the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. It's in a little series, smack dab in the middle of a series that began with the characters of Christmas that continued, I think, last year with the characters of creation. It's available wherever good books are sold from Moody Publishers. The author is Daniel Mm -hmm. Darling. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jared. And I appreciate all your stuff and your books and your work and everything. So honored to be on here with you. Yeah, thank you, man. If you enjoy the podcast, your listener, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 